Thank you for stopping by the Cypress Church Podcast. We are a church community who seek to worship Jesus, love one another, and serve the world. We hope you'll come away from this podcast with your hearts refreshed from hearing the Word of God proclaimed. 2020 is an Olympic year. This year, the Olympic Games is going to be held in Tokyo, Japan, and one of the events I will be watching very closely is the men's 4x100 track and field sprint relay. Now, on paper, the US men have four of the fastest runners in the world, but the last three Olympics, they they have been medal-less. It's all been because of one of these. They haven't either passed it within the passing zone or they've dropped the relay baton. That sound, not that sound, but a sound like that sound is death to the relay runner. They've been medalists, even though they've been the fastest runners in the world for the last three Olympics because they dropped the baton. The media headlines have read, a stunning disaster, an utter embarrassment. The low point of the Olympics for the United States. Wow. Who knew so much was on the line with a relay baton? Today, we start a year-long study in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts is all about experiencing the Holy Spirit more together. And this morning we're going to start at the beginning because it's a very good place to start in Acts chapter 1. And we're going to see three high points this morning in Acts chapter 1. We're going to see Jesus proving, Jesus promising, and his disciples praying. Jesus is going to pass the baton, so to speak, in Acts chapter 1 to his disciples. His entire plan for the salvation of the world, the redemption of the world, the renewal of all things, lies in the hands of 11 disciples. And unlike the US men's relay team, they are not very fast. They have proven themselves over the last three years with Jesus that they are slow learners. There used to be 12 of them. Now there's only 11 because one betrayed Jesus unto death and then took his own life. That's Judas. So the entire plan for the redemption of the world, the renewal of all things, lay in the hands of 11 shaky-faithed men. That doesn't sound like an incredible plan for the redemption of the world. And so the question in Acts chapter 1 that we're going to be seeking an answer to this morning is, will the 11 disciples take the relay baton that Jesus has passed them and run hard with it? Will they take the baton, the the authority that Jesus has given them, the promises that Jesus has given them for the renewal of the world, the redemption of all things, and run hard just like Jesus had trained them to do? If you have your Bibles, if you would open up with me to Acts chapter 1, if you haven't opened it to there already, it's on page 1,156, 1,156. 156 of the black Bibles in the pew in front of you, Acts chapter 1. And throughout this series, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. It is going to be challenging for us to be engaged readers and active listeners, but through the course of three and a half minutes, you'll read one entire chapter with me this morning. And we're going to split this chapter down into two halves. The first half is going to be very familiar to you, verses 1 through 11. The second half, I'm assuming, not so much, because we usually skip over the second half 
Once we get done with Jesus in the first half of chapter one, we skip over to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter two. But there's something very important in the second half of chapter one that sets up chapter two. And you don't get to chapter two unless you pay attention to the second half of chapter one. So we're gonna spend some good time in the second half of chapter one this morning. So with that, let's read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter one. Are you ready? Let's do this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These verses most likely, for those of you who have been around church for a while, are very familiar. Jesus is still at the center of all of these 11 verses. And there's two things, two high points that I want to point out in those first 11 verses. The first one is this that Jesus proved to his disciples that he was alive. Jesus proved to his disciples that he was alive. If you zero in with me on verse three, it says there that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. When it talks about many proofs, well, he appeared to them, he talked with them, they ate together, they actually touched him. There were many, many proofs over a 40-day period. If you take note of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, during this 40-day period, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6 says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. That's a lot of people. Now, when I first became a believer, I wasn't clear on this 40-day post-resurrection time with the disciples when he appeared to over 500 people, where he gave many proofs of his resurrection to them. In my mind, it was Jesus died, and then three days later, he was resurrected, and after his resurrection on that same day, he ascended into heaven. And then I read Acts chapter one, these first 11 verses, and I realized, whoa, he was around for 40 days. He appeared to over 500 people. He gave them many proofs. One of the primary purposes of Jesus during this 40-day time was to prove to his disciples that he was indeed resurrected from the dead. Somehow, as a new believer, when I learned that, That made Jesus' resurrection legit to me. It made it more believable to me. And then I started digging into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and I know I've told you this a hundred times, and you're probably sick of it, but it's important. Jesus' resurrection is the most well-attested ancient event of history of any event in ancient history. There is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth than any other event in ancient history. 
That is extraordinary to me because it seems like the most unbelievable thing about Christianity. And yet 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, if you don't believe in Jesus' resurrection, you don't believe in Jesus. You're not a Christian. There is no Christian faith if there is no resurrection of Jesus. And that is why Jesus spent 40 days offering many proofs to his disciples that he was alive. Probably one of the most stark, stunning evidences of Jesus' resurrection is in this passage, but it's down in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. As it's describing the 120 believers in the early church, it says, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I have those words underlined, and his brothers in my Bible. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospels, you will know that Jesus' younger brothers did not believe that Jesus was God's anointed king. They didn't believe he was the savior of the world. John chapter seven, verse five, tells us very plainly, Jesus' younger brothers did not believe in him. That's before his death. In Mark chapter three, verse 21, it actually says it's not just that they didn't believe in him, they actually thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They thought he had lost it. He was walking around talking like he was God. They had grown up with him in the same little town of Nazareth with him, learning to be carpenters with him. This isn't the savior of the world. This is Jesus. That was before Jesus' death, and after his resurrection, who should be among all of the believers uniting together with prayer, but and his brothers? How in the world do you explain the radical transformation in the lives of Jesus' brothers from thinking he is out of his mind before his death to believing in him after his resurrection, James, Jesus' younger brother, ends up becoming a leader in the early church. We'll see this later in the book of Acts. So much so, not just that he's taking over this leadership position in, in the church, but he's actually willing to be beheaded rather than relent of saying that Jesus was the resurrected savior of the world. He was willing to die rather than recant of his brother's resurrection. He had seen many proofs during this 40-day period, and it had radically shifted his life. Now he went from, from thinking his brother was a crazy person to worshiping him, him as the savior of the world. That is... People who study the resurrection, people who don't believe in the resurrection, aren't able to explain this radical transformation in James and the other brothers' lives. Before, crazy. After, wholehearted surrender to this one who they called brother and now they call king. What you see in these verses is that the more convinced we become about Jesus' resurrection, the more your relationship with Jesus will come alive. So do not be afraid to dig in to the evidence for Jesus' resurrection because it was one of his primary purposes during this 40-day period was to prove that he was alive, present himself by many proofs that he was alive. Don't be afraid to dig into the evidence for the resurrection. The second high point I wanna uh, point out with you is this, number two, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit in verse four. As soon as the book of Acts opens up, we are immediately introduced to the Holy Spirit. Four times throughout this chapter, you'll see the Holy Spirit referenced by name. Verse two, verse five, verse eight, and verse 16. We have the Holy Spirit 
mentioned by name. But I want you to zero in on verse 4 with me for a moment. It says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. When it says there that Jesus ordered them, think of a military commander issuing an order that must be obeyed. It was clear, it was strong, it was an order. This is a strong, and what did he order them to do? Stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't start going out and doing all this other stuff. Don't start getting active before you've actually had the Spirit come upon you. Wait. He ordered them. So he promises them the Holy Spirit and then he orders them to wait until they receive the Holy Spirit. As we begin this study, this year-long study through the book of Acts and learning about experiencing the Holy Spirit more, let's understand that this is quite an intimidating moment. We have 350 or so people, all with varying diverse experiences and levels of experiencing the Holy Spirit. Some people, some of you have experienced the Holy Spirit a lot. Some of you have experienced the Holy Spirit a very little. Just because someone's been a Christian for a long time and may even be in leadership, do not assume they've had a lot of experience with the Holy Spirit. Just because someone talks about the Holy Spirit a lot, don't assume they know about the Holy Spirit. Quite often the people I've met who know the Holy Spirit most and deepest are those people who are quiet and unassuming and serve behind the scenes. Listen to the words of Anne Graham Lotz. Anne Graham Lotz, I've been reading a book by her on the Holy Spirit. It's called Experiencing the Holy Spirit as Our Constant Companion. Anne Graham Lotz is the daughter of Billy Graham, the the evangelist, maybe one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. This is his daughter writing these words. So just listen to what she has to say at the beginning of her book on the Holy Spirit. Anne writes, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. Most of my memories are filled with warmth, love, and fun that included hiking with my family on the ridge behind our home, enjoying Chinese meals together complete with chopsticks, playing Bible games with my grandparents, and taking my dog to McDonald's so he could have a hamburger without the pickle. (laughs) I'm not giving my dog a McDonald's hamburger. One thing I don't remember is anything about the Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus was beloved, obeyed, and served by my parents and grandparents, and even though Jesus was central to my family, I don't remember being taught about the Holy Spirit. The only recollection I have to any mention of the Holy Spirit was from church, At the end of the service, the pastor would pronounce the benediction and it would always end in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's all I remember about the Holy Spirit growing up. What we are going to be seeking to do as a church, recognizing there is a diversity of experience and levels of experience with respect to the Holy Spirit, we're going to seek to build together an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works together this year. So that out of the diversity of our experiences, there will be a unity of understanding and hopefully of more experiencing together the amazing presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So with that, I wanna lay some foundations with you this morning. Remembering that if you're a long way down the track of experiencing the Holy Spirit, you'll need to be patient with those of us who are catching up, okay? There might be some catching up that some of us need to do, and those of you who are down the track will be patient with us, I know you will, because if you've experienced the Holy Spirit more, you know that one of the fruits of the Spirit is Patience, all right? 
So as we build this knowledge and experience together, I'm calling you to all be patient. These are three foundational truths about the Holy Spirit that we need to get deeply embedded in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls so that we begin understanding who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. So you'll see up on the screen these three truths. The first is this, the Holy Spirit isn't an it or an impersonal force, he is a person. The Holy Spirit isn't an it or an impersonal force, he is a person, the third person of the Trinity. There is one God, the Bible teaches us, who expresses himself as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a unique, distinct person within the Godhead. He is fully God, and yet a distinct person as he is expressed through the Scriptures. And in the Scriptures, we see in verses like John chapter 14 and verse 17, that when he is referred to, he is described with the masculine personal pronoun of he and him. So he's a distinct person and he is described over and over again in verses like John 14, 17 as he and him when they're referencing the Holy Spirit. The second foundational truth is this, if you truly believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. If you truly believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. This is crystal clear in verses like John chapter three, verses seven and eight. If you are born again, you have been born of the Spirit. If you truly believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And finally, the third foundational truth that I want you to be thinking about and dwelling upon this week is the Holy Spirit is described as being with comes upon and is now in believers. The Holy Spirit is with, comes upon, and is now in believers. Again, if we refer back to John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus said to his disciples, you know him and he is with you and soon he will be in you. That's enough to think about for a week. Think about the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence and power of God dwelling in you and that he is always with you and that at times during your life, he is going to come upon you with unique power so that you can love and serve others just like Jesus. That to me is an amazing thought. Those thoughts and ideas, I need to let sink deeply into my mind so that I'm laying a strong foundation for our understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in our church and in my life and in your lives and how he wants to work in our community outside of this church as well. So there's a lot more that could be said about verses 1 through 11, the first half of Acts chapter 1, but I'm keen to get into the second half because the second half is the half that we usually gloss over and and skip over so we can get to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. But like I said earlier, if you missed the end of the second half of chapter 1, you won't understand how chapter 2 opens its way out because the end of chapter one prepares for the beginning of chapter two. So with that, let's read verses 12 through 26. And it's in these verses that we're gonna see whether the disciples pick up the baton and run hard with it. Let's look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up on the went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot 
and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out, speaking of Judas. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. As you think through those those verses, verse 12 through 26, we see here, The answer to our question, which we asked at the beginning, would the disciples take the baton and run with it? And the answer in these verses is a resounding yes. They took the baton and they were running hard with it. They were doing everything that Jesus had wanted them to do, everything he had trained them to do. They did five things. Number one, they waited as he had ordered them. Number two, they gathered together in unity, oneness, which is exactly what he prayed for them before he died. Number three, they began praying together. Don't gloss over that because this is the very first reference in the Bible to the disciples actually praying. Up to this point, the only person that we've been told has prayed amongst Jesus and his disciples has been Jesus. This is the first reference Anywhere in the Bible to any of Jesus' disciples praying, this is a significant event. Now they don't have Jesus praying with them and for them. Now they have to do it and they stepped up into that place. Number four, they started scripturing. What do I mean by that? They started quoting scripture to one another. In this chapter, they start quoting two verses of scripture from the Psalms with respect to Judas but they start scripturing together. They start praying with one another. They start sharing scripture with each other. And finally, they start appointing leaders. From the very moment that that Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, Peter had been set aside by Jesus to be the leader of the apostles. And Peter has gone through all sorts of junk including denying Jesus three times. But the restoration of Peter is complete right here, not when Jesus restored him after his resurrection, but right here, because now Peter is actually stepping into the leadership role for the very first time that Jesus had set him apart for. He is the one in verse 15. He is the one who stood up and said, hey, We have to appoint a 12th apostle. We can't start this new thing with 11. There's always been 12. There's been 12 sons of Abraham. There's been 12 apostles. Now we're at 11. We need to appoint another apostle so that there's 12. When Jesus begins new things anywhere in Scripture, he starts with 12. It says it right here in Psalms. 
twice. We need to reappoint somebody to fill Judas's place. And so they do that. So we see Peter start stepping up into his leadership role. And we see the apostles start taking leadership seriously and appointing others to lead with them, including Matthias. So did the disciples, even before the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter two, did they pick up the baton and start running with it as they waited for the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. Yes, they picked up the baton and they were charging. But of all those things that they were doing during this period of waiting for the Holy Spirit, there's only one thing that it says they devoted themselves to above all things. They were doing many things, but they devoted themselves only to one thing. Look at verse 14 with me. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Those who study revivals throughout church history will call this kind of prayer devotion that we read about in in verse 14. They call this kind of prayer devotion, they call it learning to pray, travailing prayers together. Travailing prayers. That's a good word. Travailing prayers is where the church begins to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit And they don't just stop after one time, they keep praying. And they keep praying and travailing in prayer until the Holy Spirit descends descends upon them. They travail in prayer, they keep persisting. There's a resilience and a grit to their prayers where they keep praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. And they'll wait and they won't try to get ahead of the Lord, but they'll wait and they'll travail In prayer, this is the one thing the disciples devoted themselves to as they waited. Above all things, they devoted themselves to praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit and they did not let up until he came. Now this kind of travailing prayer can begin with one person in a church. That's how God did it in the 1850s in this country. Started with a man named Jeremy Jeremy Lamphia. Jeremy Lamphia was a, an ordinary man who loved Jesus in the city of New York in the 1850s. And God burdened Jeremy's heart to begin praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As he looked around this country, it seemed like the whole country was falling apart. And God burdened him to begin praying not for a bunch of different things, but for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on his church. And so he went out, he was a businessman, he went out with a bunch of flyers and he canvassed as much of the city as he could with these flyers calling people to pray on Wednesdays for one hour. And the first day that this prayer meeting was gonna begin in the hall of his church, he showed up at the time that was appointed And he was the only one there. And so he started to pray. He got down on his knees and he started begging God to pour out the Holy Spirit on his church for his city. And within half an hour of that first day, there was three other people that joined him. And by the end of that first hour of prayer, that first Wednesday, there was about 10 people. After six months of praying every Wednesday for an hour at the same little hall, there was hundreds of people. And then it turned into after a year, thousands of people throughout the city would pray at the same time on Wednesdays throughout churches in the city of New York. Well, the newspapers in New York got a hold of this story and thought this was an extraordinary thing that all these people are taking an hour out of their Wednesday, every Wednesday, to pray for a coming of the Holy Spirit. So they actually wrote stories about it in the New York papers in that day. And those papers got spread to other cities and the churches started praying in those other cities around this country. And what Jeremy Lamphia started that first Wednesday was what historians now call the Third Great Awakening of this country, one guy, one hour on a Wednesday. Leonard Ravenhill, who studies revivals, wrote this. You wanna write this down, this is good. 
What has hell to fear other than a God-anointed, prayer-powered church? What has hell to fear other than a God-anointed, prayer-powered church? A God-anointed, prayer-powered church is dangerous in the hands of an almighty God. And right here in Acts chapter 1, we see these disciples who have been very shaky up to this point. But when Jesus left and ascended into heaven and they were looking at each other, they didn't just go, well, I guess I'll go back to fishing now. No, they dug in. They devoted themselves to prayer. They started waiting just as Jesus had commanded them. They gathered together in unity. Please take note that everything that happens in this chapter is them doing these things together. Not separately in their own individual homes, they were gathering together to pray. They were gathering together to study scripture. They were gathering together to appoint their leaders. They were gathering together to wait patiently for the coming of the Holy Spirit. There are things that we can only experience together. God calls us together as we wait for the Holy Spirit. So with that, as you're thinking through that, just take note that the second half of Acts chapter 1 sets us up for chapter 2. As I think about the pattern that God begins here in Acts chapter one. What happens before there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter two? There is a God-anointed, prayer-powered church who is praying devotedly, travailing in prayer together, calling on God to pour out his Holy Spirit. That's what comes before the pouring out. There has never been a revival since Acts chapter one in a church where prayer hasn't been the precursor to that revival, not one. If God's people aren't praying for the Holy Spirit to come, the Holy Spirit doesn't come on that church. He'll come on some other church that does start praying. You will never find one revival in the history of the church beginning from this point, moving forward in history, where the Holy Spirit has been poured out on a church that hasn't been calling upon God, begging God, travailing in prayer for the Holy Spirit to come. So catch this, you'll see it up on the screen. There's three high points in Acts chapter one that I've directed you to, but there's one main point that I want you to consider this week. Before we're ready to experience the Holy Spirit more, first we must learn to travail together in prayer. Before we are truly ready to experience the Holy Spirit more, first we must learn to travail together in prayer. So are you ready to learn to travail in prayer together? Because if the vision for this year, and it is, to experience the Holy Spirit more together, then we're going to have to learn to travail in prayer with one another. Because there has never been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on any church in church history that has not first learned to travail in prayer together. So it's really easy to say, yeah, I want to experience the Holy Spirit more. But will you put in the hard yards with each other, with me, and pray and wait and continue to pray and continue to wait for as many days as it takes for the Holy Spirit to come? Are you willing to show up to the prayer meeting and pray even if you're the only one there like Jeremy Landfield and just continue to pray and see what God, happen, what God does? Do you have that kind of desire? Yeah, everyone wants to experience the Holy Spirit more. But will you put in the prayer work that lays the groundwork for that to happen? That's what we see here in Acts chapter one. So here, I wanna put some very practical next steps for us to put this together. The first Sunday of this year, we started talking about the Holy Spirit and we passed out these orange prayer cards. 
Now, I've seen these posted in people's car dashboards, on their mirrors at home, uh, on their mountain bikes. I mean, you guys have been putting these everywhere. But I've heard over just the last few weeks, just that we've had been passing these out, multiple people talking and multiple people praying this simple prayer that's based on John chapter 14, verse 17. It says, Holy Spirit, you are the one who dwells with us and in me. I wanna know you more this year. Please teach me more about who you are. And just in the last three weeks, there has been more discussion about the Holy Spirit, more prayer for the Holy Spirit than I've seen ever. And we've prayed and talked about the Holy Spirit a lot here. But there is an expectation and an anticipation that has come with this orange prayer card that all I'm asking you to do is take one of these cards that are out in the lobby. Take one of these cards and begin to pray this for the next month, every day. Put it somewhere where you can't miss it. If it's in your truck like it is mine, you just see it in the truck and pray through it each day. Let's pray this same prayer, this prayer of unity for the Holy Spirit over the next month, then March the 4th is the next tar target day. So first step, would you join me in praying the orange card prayer? Second step, would you join me on March the 4th? It's a Wednesday. Would you join me on March the 4th in this sanctuary at 6.30, between 6.30 and 7.30 for what we are calling the 40 days of prayer? We did this last year and it, there was some amazing things that began happening then that have led to this series in the, whole, in the book of Acts about the Holy Spirit now. But would you join me 6.30, March the 4th, in this sanctuary to begin to pray? And the 40 days ends on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, April the 12th. So would you, do, would you devote yourself to coming on March the fourth, and then for the six Wednesdays during that 40 days up to Resurrection Sunday. All of us want to experience the Holy Spirit more, but will you join me in learning how to travail in prayer, calling upon God, waiting upon Him? Because if we're going to experience the Holy Spirit more in the latter half of this year, it will be because we have started to travail in prayer for the Holy Spirit now. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. And we see that's what the disciples, our examples, who's got shaky faith? Who's had little experience with the Holy Spirit? Who's really wanting to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their church? That's what these guys were like. Track record of failure. And yet we're going to open up next week, Lord willing, to Acts chapter 2 and see these 12 men be used by God to start a revival that has not stopped for 2,000 years. That took over their whole city, but then spread from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outermost parts of the world. So that what began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago has reached Salinas, California in 2020. And yet we still live in the 16th most unchurched city in the United States. Man, we need a Jeremy Landfield to come and start praying, pour out your Holy Spirit on us as a church, on all the churches. That's why we're starting to pray for every local church, starting today, publicly in the worship service because we're begging on God to have an outpouring of his Holy Spirit that not only just affects us as a church, but our city, our county, our nation, the world. Because as the world gets crazier, I think the end is coming quicker. And that means if there is ever gonna be an end times revival of epic proportions, it's not very far away. It's already happening in other parts of the world. Ecuador, South Sudan, places in India that have been closed to the gospel for a thousand years. China, North Korea, all these places that you never hear about Christianity, the gospel is, is advancing faster and spreading quicker than any time in history in these places. 
And I want to see God do that here with you and me and in our county and in our city. But he won't do it if we're not willing to travail in prayer together. So will you join me? It might seem like a dumb little thing, but if 350 of us are all praying the same prayer for a month and then it leads into a time where we're learning to travail in prayer together right here in this place that has been designated for us to gather together and we wait and we pray and we travail and we wait and we pray and we beg God to pour out his Holy Spirit. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see if God picks up the baton that we're gonna be handing him in prayer and takes it and just goes, check this out. Boom. (laughs) And we might need several months just to prepare our hearts in prayer to be ready for what he's gonna do. So let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you so much as we're just beginning into this year-long study through the book of Acts. We just thank you for the gift and the promise of your Holy Spirit. We know that your Holy Spirit is drawing all attention to Jesus. He's drawing all attention to Jesus and he's just saying, Jesus, you are the king and he's gonna draw attention to him and lift him up. And that is, Lord, we want that to happen in our church, in our county, Jesus high and lifted up. So Holy Spirit, would you come? We believe you're with us. We believe you're in us. We believe you're among us. And would you now come upon us with power? Teach us to travail in prayer with each other and we'll give you all the glory for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. I don't know about you, but the idea of travailing in prayer sounds like a lot of fun when you have the expectation that God's actually going to do something miraculous in your midst. I love when, when Ben talks about at the beginning of the sermon, the, uh, the resurrection of, of Jesus is the most well-attested event in ancient history. I love that. It's, it's, just, it's something that's been really pushing my spirit for the last couple of years. And uh, it's true. The more you read about it, the more it's obvious and the more it's evident. And when you believe that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the one who is clearly resurrected from the dead, you want to pray. You want to know what he's going to do. You want to be involved in what he's got going on. Um, so would you continue to pray with us? And would you start praying in that way with us as a church? And, and we're going to sing together. Would you sing with us?
receive this benediction, church. As you go from this place, remember this. Our God reigns. He is robed with majesty and armed with strength. His kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. He holds our world and our lives securely. So do not be afraid. But go here, go from here with confidence, knowing that the God who goes with you is greater and more powerful than anything else you will face this week. God bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information about our community, please visit cypresschurch.org. And as always, we would love to see you every Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. Have a blessed week.